We are continuing our series in the letter of Paul to the Ephesians. Last week we looked at Paul's prayer. His prayer came as a result of an extended look at the plan of God for the salvation of men that began at the beginning of chapter 1. This plan spans from eternity past to eternity future. It involves work from all members of the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Paul's prayer at the end of chapter 1 was ultimately for the church to truly know the power of God, which is at work in the church to accomplish this plan. He says this is the same power that God used to raise Jesus Christ from the dead and to seat him in the heavenly places above all authority and rule and power. Over the next couple of chapters, Paul will show us in greater detail how that power is operating in the church today. Be thinking about that as we continue. In chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, he's going to show us that the power of God gives life to his church. In chapter 2, verses 11 through 22, he's going to show us how the power of God brings peace to his church. In chapter 3, Verses 1 through 13, he shows us how the power of God is at work in building his church through the apostolic ministry. And finally, at the end of chapter 3, Paul offers another prayer for the power of God to work to unite the church for his glory. In our section for this morning, chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, we will see another long sentence spanning from verse 1 through verse 7, and another sentence from verse 8 through verse 10 that complements Paul's point in this section is to show that the power of God is at work in the church specifically to give her life from the dead. In verses 1 through 7, Paul says that God makes us alive with Christ by his grace. In verses 8 and 10, Paul says that God makes us alive with Christ for good works. The controlling verse in this section, the main point, is found in verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. God made us alive with Christ. Again, in the previous section, we were told that this That the kind of power that is at work in the church is the same resurrection power that God used in raising Christ from the dead. Here we're told that when Christ was raised, we were raised up with him. Now a question that should immediately come to mind is, what does it mean that we're made alive? How were we raised? Jesus actually physically died on the cross and so was actually physically raised from the dead. But we didn't physically die with him. So how is it that we needed to be raised? And in what way were we raised up with Christ? Paul begins to answer that question in verses 1 through 3 of chapter 2. These verses function parenthetically to the main argument, but helps to support the point that we've been raised up with Christ. Again, that's the main argument. We've been raised up with him. Verses 1 through 3 shows us why we needed to be raised up with him. Now, this is going to be a tough section to get through, but it's necessary to think through. R.C. Sproul said that the gospel is only the good news when we understand the bad news. 
Dr. Steve Lawson calls this section the black velvet backdrop of our salvation. I may have used this illustration before, but some time ago when Dr. Lawson was preparing to propose to his wife, he goes to the, uh, the, the ring store, the jewelry store, and um, he's looking at all of these different diamonds behind the glass case, and they all look the same, right? Like a guy walks into a jewelry store and everything looks exactly the same. And so he's struggling to figure out what in the world I'm, I'm looking at here. Um, they all look the same. I can't tell the difference. There's all these C's floating around everywhere. And um, he said, you know, he, he asked to, to see one or two of them or one or two of them was recommended to him. And they all look the same to him while they're sitting behind this, this case. But the juror did something different when he went to show him, actually showcase one of the particular rings. Before taking the ring out of the case, the jeweler took out this structure, this stand, and he set the stand before him. And then he took out this black velvet cloth and he draped the cloth over the stand. And then he took the ring and he put the ring smack dab in the middle of that black cloth. And he said the minute the jeweler did that, it seemed like all the light from the room just went flooding into this little, this little diamond. And it just completely lit up. And he said that was the most beautiful thing I'd ever seen. But we need that. We need that black velvet backdrop to be able to appreciate the diamond. In this case, the black velvet backdrop is our sin. It is our fallen state before God. And knowing of that fallen state before God, knowing that as Paul is going to say, we were dead in our trespasses and sins, is going to help the diamond of the grace of God, his salvation, shine all the brighter in this section. So that's what we're looking at. That's where we're going to go this morning. This text tells us the bad news. We were all dead in our sins. We desired only that which is contrary to God, and thus we deserved only judgment. Well, let's read this section, chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, but we're going to focus in on verses 1 through 3 this morning. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for another day and another opportunity to come before your word. We pray that you would speak your servants are listening. 
Let the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts collectively be acceptable in your sight. O oh Lord, you are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Amen. Well, again, let's look at verse 1. Paul says there, we were dead in our trespasses and sins. And again, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. The and marks a continuation of his previous argument. Christ was raised from the dead. The power that was operative in working to raise him from the dead and seat him in the heavenly places above is now presently at work in the church. The you most likely refers to the same group as earlier. This predominantly Gentile audience in Ephesians, in Ephesus. <clears throat> Though he's going to make clear in this section that all are likewise judged. In verse 3, he makes that clear when he changes from you to we. But here he says, you all were dead. Well, how did that happen? In order for us to know how that happened and what that death is, we have to go back to the beginning. You remember back in the beginning when we were originally created by God, back in Genesis chapter 1, we were originally created by God, made in his image. We were set apart by God in his garden. We were given a job, an occupation, a role to till the soil, to work the ground. We were given authority over all of the rest of his creation, and that was evidenced by Adam's role of naming all of the animals. We were set apart for that very purpose. We were set apart, made in his image, given the same capability that God has for intelligence, for creativity, for wisdom, set apart to rule over God's creation on his behalf. And he gave really just one primary instruction to them or one primary prohibition to them. And we all remember what that was, right? He says in chapter 2, verse 15, the Lord God took man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not, shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. They gave him that one command. When we think about what we call in theology original sin, we talk about the fact that Adam and Eve were born innocent. They weren't born sinless. They were born innocent. They didn't know of sin. They had no knowledge of good and evil even. They had no cognitive knowledge of it. They had no experiential knowledge of it. All they had was the clear command of God. All they had was instruction from the Lord. All they had was their relationship with God. Up until that point, they had no reason to doubt his command. No reason to doubt his explanation of the consequences. They simply obeyed. And then we all know what happened next in Genesis chapter 3. The serpent, the crafty serpent came and he twisted the word of God. Has God said you shall not eat of any tree? You shall not surely die, he says. 
and he twists it even further, trying to um, force them to think that God is holding out on them. God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Thus they doubted God and they chose to disobey him. They chose to submit to the reason and desires of the serpent rather than God. They chose to follow the serpent rather than God. They ate of the tree that they were not commanded to. And at that point, death entered the world as God said that it would. And really, the whole nature of humanity was fundamentally changed at that point. We see that in a number of different ways. Their relationship with one another was changed. They immediately hid themselves from each other. They went to sow fig leaves to try to cover themselves. From who? They were the only two people there. They hid themselves from each other. They sowed fig leaves. And then when God came around, even though he had been accustomed to talking with them, face to face, as it were, to walking in the pool of the garden, they hid themselves from him. And they said, the reason why we hid ourselves is because we were naked. God says, well, who told you that you were naked? There's no reason for them to have known that or to thought that. But their relationship with each other, their relationship with God had been broken. And the book of Isaiah says that sin creates a separation between us and God. That's what he means. When we talk about death biblically, certainly we think about biblical, we think about physical death, but there's also this idea, this concept, this notion of spiritual death. And it's essentially the same thing. It is a separation. When we die physically, we're separated soul and body. When we die spiritually, we're separated in our relationship with God. There's a separation that comes between us. There's a wall that rises up between us. We are cut off from him as the source of life. They were kicked out of the garden so that they could not even be in close proximity to God, to his gifts. The image of God was not lost, but it was tainted with sin. The capacity for intelligence, creativity, and wisdom it was still there, but it was tainted now. After Adam and Eve sinned, they reproduced after their kind. And as they reproduced after their kind, in this fallen state, they reproduced others who were now fallen, who now have a broken relationship with God. The innocence was lost. And now, after that point, humanity has a nature that tends towards disobedience. Paul expounds on the significance of Adam's sin in Romans 5. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. He said sin came into the world through one man, Adam, and death through sin, death as a consequence of sin, and so death spread to all men because all Sinned. All sinned because they were all in Adam. Adam was our head. He was our representative, the representative of humanity. And because he now, after sin, had a broken relationship with God, so all those who came after him, all of those who were in him, have that same broken relationship. They all have that same separation between them and God. And ultimately, all die. 
All are spiritually dead. Their relationship with God is broken. And they will all physically die. That's why we all die. That's why as great and as wonderful and as wise and as technologically advanced as humanity is, we've never found a way to come up with a problem, a solution for death. We're not going to be able to. This is also why we do not have to teach children to sin. Right? I mean, we all know that that's true. I mean, even when we were kids, no one had to teach us to disobey our parents. No one had to teach us to lie to cover up something that we had done. No one had to teach us to covet our neighbor's juice box or toy or whatever it might have been. It's because all of us are born having the same sentence of death over our heads. All of us are born with the same fallen nature. Again, back to our text, when Paul says that they were dead in trespasses and sins, this is what he's referring to. That original spiritual death that was a part of the fall. The original sin that was a part of the fall. And the fact that that original sin led to a corruption of humanity, of the nature of humanity. At the present, there are no good people from God's perspective. There may be good people from our perspective. I've said this before, right? Some of the nicest people that I've ever met have been unbelievers. There may be some very nice people that you know. Very moral people. They do good things generally. We know the philanthropists of the world, right? The, the tree huggers, the people who try to preserve the world. They want to do something good. Though we might think they're good people, none of that changes God's mind. I already read Psalm 14 in Romans 3. The Lord, this is from Psalm 14, the Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. In his response, they have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. There are none who do good. Back again to our text, Paul says that we were dead in the trespasses and sins in which they once walked. Now we've talked about trespasses and sins before, right? Trespassing is going beyond a boundary that has been set. We've all seen the no trespassing signs. We know what that means. Don't go past this point. And we all know that deep down inside, what? We really want to go past that point. <laughs> because we're told not to. We all want to go past that point. We want to see what's beyond the boundary. We want to see if there is actually any danger. We chalk it up to curiosity when in fact it's really the remnant of our fallen nature that desires to reject boundaries. The word for sins here is more of a general term. He's using this second term as a catch-all for any evil that we do. Again, in context, the trespassing and sin committed is trespassing and sin against God. It is done in contradiction to his will. It's done in rejection of his will. We cross lines that he has determined. We cross boundaries set by him. These things are evidences of our spiritual death, Paul says. 
He says this is a way of life for us. He says this is the way that we once walked. In verse 3, he says this is the way we all once lived. This is a way of life for us. Paul's going to come back to this idea of what it means to walk later in the book of Ephesians. I think we've talked about this in other contexts before, but the idea of to walk is just that. It has to do with how our life is characterized, the general flow of our life. When someone sees us generally, what do they see about us? Well, those who are outside of Christ are generally characterized by sin and disobedience, trespassing. We live in sin. We indulge in sin. We desire to sin. And ultimately, we become slaves to sin. Paul's going to say in our passage as we move on that we become slaves, in fact, to the world, the devil, and to our own sinful nature. Look again at the text. Once again, verse 1, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind. Now those first two, the world and the devil, are external to us. Let's look at that first one. We were slaves to the world. Again, verse 2, we, we followed the course of the world. The world translated for course actually means age or period of time. We get our, we get our English word eon from it. This term intends to signify, just as the ESV translates, the course or trajectory, the philosophy, the worldview of the time period in which we live. Whatever the world around them says, the society around us, the culture around us, whatever the external environmental expectations are for that day, we follow. We keep up with the Joneses, so to speak. We are in Rome, and so we do as the Romans do, right? The ways of the world are not surprising to us. It's not shocking to us. It's the normal course of life. We live, we grew up, we took on whatever profession was expected, got whatever education was expected, raised a family as expected according to the course of the world, contributed to society in whatever ways society expected. We didn't ruffle any feathers. We didn't go against the grain. We just did what everyone else did. Now, in our society, there has been a shift in morality, moving away from the biblical morality that this nation was founded upon to a more secular faith. But the reality is that everyone in the society is moving in that direction. But that shouldn't surprise us, right? It shouldn't surprise us that everyone just, just moves right along with the flow. Most people just accept blindly this moral shift, even if they don't personally hold to it. This is the course of the world we now live in. Human sexuality, gender, those are all individual choices. Norms are the past. In fact, what is normative now is that there should be no norms, at least no norms defined by anyone outside of our own way of thinking. This is the course of the world. The unbelieving world follows its own trajectory and doesn't even realize the dangers of it. We're commanded in the word of God, 1 John chapter 2, do not love the world, nor the things that are in the world. 
For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. In other words, those who love the world, the unbelievers who are following the course of the world, are not from the Father. The very lives live in contradiction to his will. We followed the world, but we also followed the devil. Look again at verse 2. Again, in which he formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. We followed the devil. He is the prince or the ruler of the air, as the text says. He is the spirit that now works in the sons of disobedience. I mentioned this at the end of chapter 1, but Paul is going to develop the theology of spiritual warfare in this letter. The believers in Ephesus faced the reality of spiritual warfare frequently, so he desired to encourage them in the midst of it. He'll say later in chapter 6, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. There is spiritual warfare. Satan does exercise a measure of dominion here, but ultimately God is greater. Again, we learn from chapter 1 that Jesus Christ is Lord. He rules over all. There's no one greater than him. In the end, all of his enemies will be made subject and all will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That day is coming. But until that day, Satan does have rulership and he rules over the lives of the unbelieving. The air is his kingdom. It is the place where Satan rules. His rule extends over those who are not in Christ. In fact, when we come to faith in Christ, we're said to be brought out of that kingdom. Colossians 1.13 says that God has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son. Satan is the prince of the power of the air. He is the spirit that is working in the sons of disobedience. His spirit works in them. He compels them. He controls them. And by virtue of this, they are referred to as sons of disobedience. They are sons of their father, the one who disobeyed from the beginning. They are chips off the old block, in other words. They're under his control, his power. John says it this way, we know that we are from God and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one, 1 John 5. He controls them even to the degree that, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, their very minds are blinded by him so that they cannot see the light of Christ. 2 Corinthians 4, 3, And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Beloved, that is why we must, every time we go forth with the word of God, with the gospel, we must bathe it in prayer. Because no matter of convincing no matter of friendship evangelism, no matter of apologetics are going to break through the blindness that Satan has put on the unbelieving. Amen. It is only the power of God at work through the gospel of God. Through his Holy Spirit working that people come to faith in Christ. Amen. And Paul's point is that prior to coming to Christ, we were in a truly desperate state. Most who are apart from Christ and who reject Christ do so with the understanding that they're operating on their own strength, using their own understanding, truly seeing the implications of faith in Christ, 
but finding it lacking in their own judgment. In fact, they may see all of their pursuits in life, their reasoning, their worldview that compels them. They see this all as a part of their own clever and careful understanding. And yet behind it all is the control of the prince of the power of the air. It is his will being exerted on their minds to blind them of the truth. He's actively working to do that, and they are actively following him. Moving on again, those who are outside of Christ are enslaved to the world, the devil, and to the flesh. It would be nice if we could claim, as the world does, that we're all basically good and that evil is only as a result of external pressures, right? It was the environment that I grew up in, the world. Or the devil made me do it, right? <laughs> Unfortunately, our corruption is more basic than that. It's a little closer to home. We were enslaved also to the flesh. Verse 3, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. I mentioned earlier that pronouns were important. Again, if there were distinctions being made early in verse 2, Paul said, you once walked. That distinction is put to rest here. He says, we all live this way. It doesn't matter if you're Jew or Gentile. It doesn't matter if you were close to the promises of God, previously close to his word, separated from the influence of the world. In the final analysis, we all had the same issue. We all lived in the passions of the flesh. The term for passions is another way of speaking of strong desires. We often translate it as lust. A lust or a passion is a strong desire. It's a craving. It can be a craving for anything, a lust for anything. The term is not necessarily relegated to immorality. However, it is typically used to describe a strong desire for something that is wrong or improper. In this case, it refers to strong desires of the flesh. The flesh is another term that's significant. It shows up frequently in Paul's theology. In fact, of the 147 times the term flesh appears in the New Testament, 91 of those times are by the hand of the Apostle Paul. He uses it nine times in the book of Ephesians. The flesh can refer to the material part of humanity in general. 1 Corinthians 15 talks about the flesh of man and the flesh of beasts, our physical bodies. It can refer to Christ and his earthly existence. Romans chapter 1 verse 3, Jesus is truly man. He came in the flesh. It can also refer to the fallen nature of humanity that opposes God. Romans chapter 8, verses 5 through 8. We'll talk about that in just a second. This last point is clearly how it's functioning in this passage. The flesh, the fallen nature of man has strong desires, and those strong desires assert its will on unbelievers. Galatians 5, Paul references the desires of the flesh which are opposed to the Spirit of God. Verses 19 through 21, he says these are the works of the flesh, and they're contrasted with the works of the Spirit. The works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. Those are the works of the flesh. Again, back in our text, we all lived in the strong desires of the flesh, carrying out their desires, carrying out the desires of the flesh and of the mind. 
I'll say again, before coming to faith in Christ, we may have all believed that the desires we had were of our own imagination. We fully indulged in those things because that is what we wanted. The reality is that it was a part of our fallen nature. Those impulses, the desires of the flesh that compelled us. The flesh has a will, and its will is contrary to the will of God. But that will compelled us forward. It wanted, and we wanted to satisfy it. We were slaves to its desires. Paul says in Romans 6, if you present yourself to someone as an obedient slave, then you become its slave, period. And we presented ourselves and our members to the desires of the flesh. But we also carried out the desires of the mind. The mind is the inner man, the immaterial part of man, where thought and will carry out their daily task of ordering life. In other words, it's not only the flesh that has a will and whose will is depraved, corrupted, it is also that our mind, the immaterial part of us, was also corrupted by sin. I re reference Romans 8 just a bit ago. Paul says that the mind and the flesh are related. In verse 5 of chapter 8, he says, Those who live according to the flesh set their minds on things of the flesh. In verse 7, he says, The mind set on the flesh is hostile towards God. It does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Those who live according to the flesh and their fallen nature set their mind on those things. Those who set their mind on those things are by nature hostile towards God. They don't submit to his law. And the Bible says they cannot even please him. It doesn't matter how hard they try. Romans 1 gives us a little bit more of an idea as to what happens to the minds of men when they reject God. He says that God ultimately rejects them. In Romans 1, they fail to acknowledge God. They fail to give him thanks, the text says, and then God gives them over. Chapter 1, verse 24, it says that he gives them over to their lusts. Verse 26, he gives them over to dishonorable passions. Verse 28, he gives them over to a debased mind. Those who reject God are given over in their rejection as God's judgment. They're given over to be filled with all manner of unrighteousness. And that's what the text says. God gives them over to their degrading passions. He gives them over to their lust, to the wickedness of their minds, and they're filled with all manner of unrighteousness evil, covetousness, malice, envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness, gossip, slander. They're haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, rootless, ruthless, and approving of others who do the same. Why is the world moving so far away from God? Why do we see a world even our society, characterized by so many of these things, unrighteousness, covetousness, murder, maliciousness, gossip, those who hate God, those who are boastful, those who are disobedient to their parents, foolishness, faithlessness, and approving of those who do the same. Why do we see a world characterized by that? Because God has, God has given them over to the wickedness of their minds, to their unrighteousness. We see a world 
that pursues whatever their flesh desires, whatever their bodies crave. We see a world that pursues whatever their minds desire. It's all because God has given them over. As it was in the days of Judges, when there was no king, really when God wasn't acknowledged as their king, so it is today. Everyone does what? What was right in their own eyes. The fallen mind leads one to pursue all manner of kinds of sin which are contrary to the will of God. Remember that we were made in his image with a capacity for great intelligence and creativity. Sometimes when we look around at the sin that we see in the world, we scratch our heads like, how did they do that? How did they get to that point? Who would even think of doing that? That's because God has created us in his image, so he's given us the capacity to do very intelligent things and to conceive of things, creativity. All of that is a gift from God, but it's all been corrupted by sin. And these gifts are now used for the purposes of disobeying him. In theology, when we talk about the depravity of man, when we talk about their sin, it's not that any one person is as sinful as they can be. It is that every part of them is affected by sin. Every part of them is affected by the fall. Well, again, we were all dead in our trespasses and sins. We were born that way due to the fall. The entire nature of humanity is corrupt, prone to sin. We're slaves to the ways of the world, the devil, and our flesh. We're thoroughly and completely corrupted by sin. Our flesh sets itself against the will of God. Our mind rejects the reality and rule of God. We come to love and revel in and celebrate things that are contrary to him. The totality of our being is an open rebellion against the Lord. There's nothing that we can do about it, and truthfully, there's nothing we want to do about it. Because we enjoy who we are. This applies to all of us. The Bible says that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God in Romans 3. That's what we mean. And because all of this is true, what we deserve is the judgment of God. And back to our text, Paul says that we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Those who walk according to the course of this world, those who live in the desires of the flesh, these are children of wrath. All people outside of Christ are children of wrath. No one is excluded. We are that by nature. Again, God is holy. We sang that song earlier this morning. He is holy, therefore he must judge sin. If he did not judge sin, he would not be holy. Holiness demands justice. Holiness demands that sin receive the proper consequences. He is holy. He is perfect. We fall short of his glory we fall short of his standard of perfection. We who are, again, dead in our trespasses and sins, following the course of the world, following Satan, slaves to lust, lust of the flesh and of the mind, those things which set themselves in opposition to God. We are children of wrath. All we deserve is his judgment. I like this quote. When author says the wrath in view is God's holy anger against sin and the judgment that results. It is neither an impersonal process of cause and effect, nor God's vindictive anger, nor unbridled unrighteous revenge, nor an outburst of passion. Wrath describes neither some autonomous entity alongside God, nor some principle of retribution that is not to be associated closely, closely with his personality. 
God is holy. Therefore, he does not stand idly by when people act unrighteously, transgress his law, show disdain to him as their creator, or spurn his kindness and mercy. He acts in a righteous manner, punishing sin in the present and especially on the final day. This is, again, why our spiritual death leads to physical death, Romans 6.23. This is why judgment comes after death, Hebrews 9.27. This is why God has fixed a day for final judgment, Acts 17.31. And this is why the judgment of God is eternal, 2 Thessalonians 1.5-10. Well, beloved, this text paints a bleak picture But again, it is a bleak picture that we must see and understand. There are no good people in God's view. Your family, your friends, your neighbors, your co-workers, perhaps even you, if you are outside of Christ, if you have not trusted in him, in God's eyes, you are dead in your sins. Period. No one comes into this world good or neutral. We are born with a sentence of death already upon us. It is who we are by nature. We follow after the ways of the world, the whims of the devil, our fleshly impulses and our fallen minds. Any good deeds that we may do are tainted by sin. They are, as Isaiah says, accounted as filthy garments before God. And again, there's nothing that we can do about it and really nothing we want to do about it. We enjoy who we are, we revel in who we are, and we heartily approve of those who do likewise. We just spent a lot of time talking about humanity and its fallen state, and that is a tough message, but again, this text is not ultimately about us. This text is ultimately about what God has done. But the reality is that we cannot truly appreciate the good news until we come to grips with the bad news. Again, this section is the black velvet backdrop against which shines the diamond of the salvation by the grace of God. And it all starts with two simple words in verse 4, but God. And we'll pick up there next week. Father, thank you for those two simple words. But God. Thank you for your grace and mercy shown to us. Thank you that though all we deserve is your judgment, your wrath, we deserve it. That is who we are by nature. Those who deserve your wrath. Though we deserve your wrath, your judgment, your punishment, you are gracious. You are gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. We thank you for the cross. We thank you that though, as our final hymn will say, though we were once lost in darkest night and we had not known the way, though all of what we thought would promise us joy in life had led us to the grave, though we had no hope that you would own a rebel to your will. Though if you had not loved us first, we would still refuse you. We rejoice in the Lord Jesus. We rejoice in the cross. We rejoice in his blood shed for us. We rejoice in your powerful work in us to raise us from the deadness of our previous life to new life in him. We pray this all in Christ's blessed name. Amen. Amen.